0: Uh, uh, if anyone doesn't need introduction at Princeton, uh, in, the field, in the field of genomics, it's our next speaker, uh, who was a trustee of the university, as I recall, no less. Um, and uh, in addition, of course, was uh, one of the uh, most uh, uh, famous of the immigrants into biology from uh, you know Pure mathematics uh, or if economics it can be called pure mathematics f- via economics, economics right um, and uh, it's, uh, he, of course, uh, has been responsible for many things, uh, but probably uh, really organizing the sequencing of the human genome to a highly industrialized level in an academic uh, environment. Uh, and actually getting the job done uh, is probably uh, the achievement that probably deserves particular mention here. But also, Eric has been very active as a theoretician, and so we get to see both the uh, both the um, high throughput uh, side and the theoretical side. I hope uh, in about a minute, if the electronics. Well, if we can
1: get to see it, it was working before.
0: It was, I, I saw it working before. Yeah. I'm a witness. Right.
1: Um, you, you, you play.
0: Uh, you could. We could talk about polymorphism some more.
1: Yes, absolutely. Well, <laughs> keep
0: talking, David. It's, it's I not don't a have anything more to say. I mean, <laughs> <laughs> what, did we, what died? I
1: don't know. They just plugged it back in, and it's not... Uh well, there's detect displays, but it's not detecting a display. Yes, but you you did fine with this.
0: Uh, no. There's always the uh, ineffable. Turn it off and turn it on right. again. Right. So are we, I just put it to sleep and turn it on
1: again. So is that? Displays. This is display. Rebooting is always fun. Reboot? Just reboot. That's always good. Just restart. We'll see if it comes up. But this is what it doing? No. Okay. No, no. Give it a moment. It usually waits till this comes over. This should be. This should be on. Oh.
0: Reboot. Uh, we would be interested to know. You would be interested to know that the defect was in the security of the plugging in and not uh, in the The software. The plugs didn't make The plugs hadn't been pushed in far enough.
1: Um,
0: It'd be amazing, and it actually is relevant to the previous discussion. When you have a problem of zero function, okay, don't look for a subtle change.
1: Exactly. So it raises the question, how much complex disease is zero function, of course? But anyway, um, I'm going to count on the fact that, oh, there we go. Let's try. We are in business, I think. There we go. We'll see. It remains to be, yes. No, no, I want to see them. Compromise. That's good. Okay, we're in business. It is um, really very special to come to celebrate and pay tribute to two institutions that I feel my deepest loyalties to. Indeed, the two institutions that have most deeply shaped my own professional life. The first is Princeton, because I was an undergraduate here, class of 1978. In fact, lived much of my undergraduate existence only about hundred feet from here in Fine Tower, where I was a math major, a pure math major, no economics, mind you, David. Um, and uh, I actually am coming up my 25th reunion this, this spring, and I still marvel at the effect that, that my time here had. The other great institution that deeply shaped my life is David Botstein. Um, LAUGHTER David is not actually the reason that I migrated from mathematics, pure mathematics, into, into biology, but he is the reason that I migrated into human genetics and genomics. Uh, it was one afternoon in 1985 in, at, at MIT when someone, it's actually Barbara Meyer, introduced me to David Botstein, and he immediately accosted me with some bombastic pronouncement about human genetics. We instantly fell into arguing about this. He's from the Bronx, I'm from Brooklyn. And I never looked back. Uh, It changed my life, and you are all incredibly lucky to have David Botstein here to accost you now. Just remember to take it in the right spirit. So what I'd like to talk about today is this, so thank you both very much. Uh, both to Shirley and to David for for inviting me to to take part in what is such a a wonderful celebration of, I think, a great new direction at at, at Princeton. So what I want to talk about is the transformation of modern biology from a purely laboratory-based science into an information-based science, and increasingly the notion that, that we should, at least some of the time, view biology as information per se, and that that view of biology is tremendously powerful. Now, the notion that biology is at its heart about information is, in some sense, an old one. It goes back to our hero, Gregor Mendel, with his recognition that somehow information was transmitted from parent to offspring according to some rules. Uh, And, of course, that, that idea lay fallow for about 35 years until the... The rediscovery of Mendel in about 1900 or so, um, independently by three different groups around the world, such that in the opening weeks of the 20th century, January of 1900, we have the first paper rediscovering Mendel. The 20th century can be read, I would say, as the exegesis of this idea that biology is about information. The first quarter of the 20th century was devoted to figuring out that the information resided in the cellular structure of the chromosomes. The next quarter of the 20th century was devoted to figuring out that the molecular basis of this information was the DNA double helix. The next quarter of the 20th century was devoted to figuring out how that information was encoded and read out through RNA and through genetic code, and also how, through the tools of recombinant DNA, we ourselves could read out that information that the cell reads out. Well, that brought us to the last quarter of the 20th century, which has been characterized by a voracious appetite to read as much of this information as possible. First, single genes, then sets of genes, then entire genomes of small organisms, medium-sized organisms. And in a wonderful set of bookends to the 20th century, they're reading out of nearly the complete genetic information of the human being in the closing weeks of the 20th century. It's not bad as centuries go. And it, it makes you realize what could happen in the next century if anything like that rate of progress is sustained, and I suspect it will, in fact, be exceeded. So what it does is it gives to the next generation of biologists, to the graduate students, the undergraduates, the postdocs of today, the keys to the most remarkable library on this planet, this library in which evolution has been taking notes. The evolution is an experimentalist. Evolution wakes up every morning, does, makes a few changes of nucleotides here or there, sees how it works, that the experiment is successful, it keeps the notes. If the experiment's unsuccessful, actually evolution discards the notes, which is not appropriate procedure anymore. But since evolution got into this before those things were codified, you have to cut it a bit of slack about things like that. In this library, we can pull down volumes with sequences of individual species, of individuals within the species, and both the DNA and the RNA volumes, so to speak, of individual cells within individuals within these species. At the moment, we pulled down a few volumes. We're pretty amateur readers. Uh, we get a little gloss out of the text from these remarkable classical volumes. But in fact, what much of the work of, of the next generation of, of young scientists coming in will be is to become really, really careful, sensitive readers of these remarkable texts of experiments. So what I want to do is talk a little bit. I'm going to just choose examples, and, in, and essentially in every case, I'm going to pick examples where young people... Where graduate students, postdocs, are using this point of view as bio, of biology as information to, to to really investigate questions in a in a very different way. I'll talk a little bit about the human genome project, but very very little. Just just uh, a couple of slides to set the context. Then I'm going to turn to comparative genomics, where I first want to talk about the comparison of the mouse and the human, and what can be learned through two genomes, not one. And then I want to turn to an even more powerful comparison, what can be learned through four genomes. The work uh, of, in fact, comparing four different yeast species. And uh, this is work, in fact, that, that we've had tremendous uh, pleasure in collaborating with David and, and the folks at Stanford on. I then want to talk about human genetic variation. Neil has already given a great introduction to this subject. And so, in fact, I will I will speak complementarily about uh, things that take off on what Neil has already uh, described to you about reading information from cancer cells and about integrating genomic information. What I want to give you is a set of vignettes, and so I will try not to dwell too much on the details of any of them, but I hope cumulatively you get a sense of of what this next generation of, of students coming in who no longer make the distinction between wet biology and dry biology. I mean, we oldsters think about that, but this next generation is going to stop making that distinction. So the Human Genome Project itself was was biology's first really great infrastructure-building project, the field coming together in a collective action over the course of about 15 years to assemble the infrastructure to empower the individual graduate student, postdoc, starting investigator to take on problems without having him or herself to generate all of the underlying information. Uh, it was the joint work of 20 centers around the world in six countries, the United States, the United Kingdom, France, Germany, Japan, and China, which joined the project in 1999. And it resulted in an initial publication that appeared uh, about 18 months ago, in the, uh, almost 23 months ago actually now, in the, the journal Nature, reporting a draft sequence of the human genome uh, that sequence uh, has continued to progress such that we're hoping that by April of this year, in fact, middle of April 26th, uh, in time for the 50th anniversary of the Watson-Crick paper, we should have a, quote, finished sequence of the human genome. Finished is a term of art. There will still be gaps in regions that we cannot clone with current technologies. They include centromeres, telomeres, and probably about 1% of the genome that just is recalcitrant to current techniques. But all the rest of it should have its gaps closed, its ambiguities resolved, etc. Even so, it surely won't be perfect, but it will be a technically finished sequence. And work will continue, I'm sure, over the next decades to get the last percent. And genome aficionados will care a lot about that, but most other people will not be interested as, as those details lastly get filled in. It's a beautiful genome we have, and it's quite remarkable, and we don't understand so much about it. Uh, do we have a laser weapon here? here silly. Is, is there a laser weapon. No, it doesn't. Anyway, I'll, uh, here we go. Um, you'll notice there are regions of the genome that are just cheek to jowl filled with genes, and regions of the genome that are very gene poor. These regions that are gene-dense versus gene-poor typically have more Gs and Cs, as you can see from this little black line there. They also tend to correspond to light bands on chromosomes rather than dark bands on chromosomes. And you could ask, why is that that the genome should be a harlequin of these different neighborhoods? And my answer would be your guess is as good as mine. Um, We don't know. Uh, I have have hypotheses that this represents a certain detente between transposable elements of different kinds, but it's very hard to prove such things. But it's a remarkable observation that does characterize mammalian genomes. The most important and, I think, surprising finding to many was that the genome has nowhere near as many genes as as we teach in freshman biology for a decade. I teach MIT's freshman biology course, and for a decade I taught students that there are 100,000 genes, because that's what it says in the textbook forever. Um, It turns out that that estimate was based on the following uh, deep evidence. Uh, Wally Gilbert observed in the early 80s that a typical gene was 30 KB and the genome was three billion bases and therefore you could fit 10 to the fifth of them in there. Um, it turns out that that Wally, uh, being a former physicist, intended this as a back-of-the-envelope calculation, and it turns out it's good to within a factor of about three, which is what's expected. but problem it was so round; everybody else took it very seriously. In fact, there only appear to be about 30 to 40,000 genes in the human genome; they constitute only about one and a half percent of the sequence of the genome. Uh, this is disturbing to people, of course, because things like the mustard weed, Arabidopsis thaliana, has some 27,000 genes, disturbingly close to the human gene count, and, and really uh, seeming to many an affront to human dignity in this respect. So a lot of attention has gone to the question of if we don't have a lot more genes, are our genes in some way better? Um, LAUGHTER well, it does appear there's more alternative splicing in our, our genes than in many of these lower organisms. But if we get into real points for innovation, we don't get a lot of points for, for creative new innovation. Relatively, new few, relatively few protein domain, new protein domains are found in mammalian genomes. Only about 4 or 5% of the protein domains we can identify don't already appear in invertebrate genomes. Uh, we do a little better if we talk about protein domain architectures, that is mix-and-match combinations, orders in which these domains occur, and it looks like we have about twice as many as invertebrates, so it's a little derivative, I suppose, that, that we took pre-existing parts and just kept rearranging them. The most derivative of all that really characterizes uh, the vertebrate genomes is just huge gene family expansions. You get a good idea and you just copy it and diverge it slightly. Immunoglobulins. We have 111 intermediate filament proteins testifying to a great interest in epithelial surfaces. We have forty Growth fa- TGF-like beta growth factor genes, whereas flies and worms do just fine, thank you with two. And olfactory genes are a, a perfect case in point. You own a 1,000 olfactory gene receptor loci, uh, testifying there to the great interest of your vertebrate forebears in the sense of smell, an interest which you incidentally have lost because about two-thirds of them are pseudogenes. Um, You've probably become much more interested in sight than smell. Mice, by contrast, keep their olfactory receptor genes in much better working order, in fact. So all of these are things you can extract from a genome. But these are are published descriptions of the human genome. I shan't dwell on them. It's a really interesting genome. It's your genome. You should read it. Um, Instead, though, I want to turn to comparative genomic analysis. What can you learn from more than one genome? And what's great about the speed of modern science is how quickly we go from being excited and having hoopla over one big genome to now seeing just this outpouring over the course of the past year of much more genomic information, Uh, a sequence very... very good sequence of the mouse, having just been published, sequence of rat now on the web. The chimpanzee uh, already has about 50 percent coverage and should be in, in mighty, mighty fine shape by sometime in May. Uh, I think we'll see a dog by early next year. We have three fishes. there's two urochordate sea squirts, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. It's, it's just a remarkable outpouring, not to mention all sorts of, of microbes and things. Let me focus on the mouse. The mouse uh, genome was just reported, a draft sequence of the mouse genome was just reported in Nature in uh, about four or five weeks ago. And uh, just to give you a sense of how far we have come in a half a century, this was the mouse genetic map circa 1950, you can tell from the dress here. Um, <laughs> an exhibit at the International uh, Genetics Congress put on by the Jackson Labs. Each of these wooden bars represents one of the mouse chromosomes. Each of these pages contains a mouse mutant whose mutation maps to the shown location on the genome. This is a beautiful genetic map, of a, a beautiful map of a genome. Not that useful in some sense, but wonderful for public education. It's a pity it's not maintained. This, however, is the current map of the mouse genome on the poster that comes out with that paper there. And what you have is about 96% of the sequence laid out in very large context, which only with only about 70 places in the genome for which there isn't scaffolding across it. And so you've got a a much more detailed picture in the course of those 50 years. What do we learn from that picture? When we start lining up sequence from the mouse with sequence of the human, we find that for better than 95% of the genome, if you take a chunk, say a million bases or so of mouse, and you start looking, where's the best match to this sequence here in the mouse? Well, it matches there in the human. And where's the best match to this bit? Well, it's there, and this bit it's there, and this bit it's there. And they're all in perfect lockstep order for quite some distance. This is, of course, no accident, because these two regions of mouse and human must be the descendants of a common ancestral region in our common ancestors 75 million years ago. They've simply been passed down with deletions and insertions of transposal elements and nucleotide changes, but it's still unambiguously the same chapter of the same text, and you can just line it up. Now, it doesn't extend forever like this. You get breaks in the order. But for example, they can go quite far. Human chromosome 20 lines up over almost its entire length with one little bit ripped out here, with part portion of mouse chromosome 2. Human chromosome 17 with about 8 or 10 portions of mouse chromosome 11. And you can build a whole cross-index. For every bit of the, let's say, mouse genome, oh, I don't know, let's let's pick a bit here, green, Uh, this bit of mouse chromosome 3 matches up with, I think it's human chromosome 4, and yada, yada. And you can look up all of those pieces. it's about 350 or so chapters that have been rearranged to get from one text to the other. Well, that's interesting. Now, when you do this, it turns out that you can learn surprisingly much just from that. When we went back and we looked, and this is all the work of an international consortium again, uh, at the gene predictions in the human. Here's a gene prediction. Here's a gene prediction that we've made. Many of the gene predictions line up very well with gene predictions made independently in the mouse. Not surprising. But interestingly, some don't. And when we look closely at the ones that we now see don't, it becomes very clear that three quarters of the ones that we had previously called that don't match up with the mouse are, on close inspection, pseudogenes. Subtle pseudogenes, often stop codons or missing chunk of exon here or there, and in fact, it means that the human protein coding gene count was probably overcounted. And when we wrote 30 to 40,000. We've now written 25 to 35,000, On my best guess is 28,000. We can all, you know, go back and forth over this, but it clearly is the case that there is even overcounting there. So it's all good news in terms of, of having to remember all these genes. Um, and it turns out that. Uh, 99% of mouse genes, it may well be 100%, but one's always loath to say things like 100%, appear to have clear homologs in the human. We're down to 42 that we can't find homologs for at the moment. Um, 96% have their homologs in regions of conserved synteny, and in 80% of those cases, they match up with one to one perfect correspondence with an ortholog in the two species. In the other 20 odd percent, um, they match up with, say, three genes here and two genes there, so there's been family expansion and contraction, but very clearly in the same place. So that's one thing that comes from comparing is we get a bit of a refined picture of the genes. Interestingly, when we look at the gene family expansions that have occurred, in particular, when we look at places where the human owns one gene, and the mouse has seen fit to expand to have at least four or five or more genes of the same type right there. It turns out we've got at least 25 places, actually some of them are olfactory receptors, I'll leave those out, but of 25 such expansions that appear to have occurred, 14 have to do with reproduction, 5 have to do with host defense and immunity, saying that this appears to be what has been on the mouse's mind over the course of the last 75 million years is sex and... Uh, host defense, in terms of really reshaping genome. We actually don't yet have the analysis reciprocally for the human, but I suspect it will be the same issues, been on the mind of the human, and, and, but just different genes have been picked to accomplish this. Um, now, what's, a, what's an even more surprising thing is that we find that these conserved sequences between mouse and human, well, many of them occur in exons. Uh, there we go. Here, Here's a typical favorite gene of mine, and here are these exons, and I've indicated that these are conserved sequences, at least 100 base pairs, showing pretty good conservation indicated by their color. But what's striking is, across the same region, we have about as many sequences, about as well conserved, that are clearly not exons of this gene. And whatever we may think about you know how much we can predict what function is across this region evolution has an opinion too and it thinks half of the stuff that matters ain't protein coding stuff how much of the genome is actually under selection well of the roughly 500,000 items that we see as highly conserved a little less than half actually technically out of 560,000 items about 220,000 or so appear to be protein coding exons the majority do not Now, you should immediately object and say, well, what you said is your threshold for significantly conserved stuff. Why are you getting excited about these things? And so, uh, since this is an important question, what we have is we need a control. So in the genome, there are lots of transposable elements that hopped and landed in the genome before mouse and human diverged. Most of these things are dead and non-functional. And what we did was we measured the rate of conservation in them to set a background rate. That allows us then to, for example, measure how much mutation has been occurring in the mouse lineage and the human lineage. Interestingly, mouse has piled up twice as much mutation per year as the human has piled up. Uh, And actually, currently, we think it's running at about four or five times as much. But what it really lets us do is take that background rate of neutral substitution in the genome and compare it to the overall rate those oh, are neutral conservation compared to the overall rate of genomic conservation shown in blue and as you'll see there's a tail here it goes off to the right and if you subtract the neutral rate the background rate from the observed rate for the whole genome you get this the excess conservation and it is about five percent of the genome five percent of the little windows across the genome are simply much better conserved than they have any right to be what are these well i don't know There are about a quarter of a million of them, Um, some of them are UTRs, some of them are likely to be regulatory elements, some are likely to be RNA genes, some are likely to be structural elements. Actually, of the 250,000, I recognize two of them as known enhancers, but that's still 249,998 to go, and it is in fact a tremendous challenge to the next generation of students to figure out what all this stuff is. Um, I have seen unpublished data now comparing to a bunch of other mammalian species in specific regions, and when you pile up many species, the estimates continue to look like it's 4 to 5% or so. So this looks like it's it's quite a real observation. Um, I think it's wonderful because what it tells us is we are just truly deeply ignorant about what's in a genome. Um, I want to acknowledge that the person who led all of this project uh, was a very was a young scientist, lindblad Blatto, who, who uh, in fact has has had two major uh, genetic projects underway: one the sequencing of the mouse, the other her two-year-old here, and uh, has done both admirably. There, Uh is really a wonderful scientist who, who's coordinated this whole effort across multiple centers. Now, if you really want to press this question of how much can we learn about regulatory and other non-coding sequences, the place to really look is David Botstein's favorite organism, yeast. And so some years ago, we said, why don't we try the same thing, but let's sequence multiple organisms, not just two. Let's sequence, in addition uh, to the fact that we have the genome of Saccharomyces cerevisiae, uh, through the good offices of David and, and the whole yeast community, let's sequence Saccharomyces paradoxus, makati, bionis line up their sequences and look for things that are better or less conserved. When you do it, you find the genomes line up exceedingly well. There are a few rearrangements here and there, but they line up extremely well. So if you take any neighborhood of the genome, you'll see all the genes occur in roughly the same order here. um, And it's really no trouble at all to figure out where to line things up. In fact, simply by lining things up, it turns out that one can go back and re revise, re-annotate the yeast genome sequence, which was published in 1995 and was described in great detail as how many genes there were, etc. But it turns out on close inspection, the other species are happy to tell you that, in fact, about 500 of the things noted as open reading frames, potential Uh, genes, in fact, should be deleted because, in fact, they have no conservation whatsoever in reading frame, et cetera, in the other species. At least 30 novel small genes come up. In about 40 instances, it's clear that two consecutive open reading frames are a single open reading frame in all the other species. There are about 200 instances where the stop codon unanimously, it looks, should be moved, often due to a single base change in the cerevisiae. Uh, But but all the others agree that 75 instances where it looks like the stop codon should move. And so it looks like the gene count was perhaps not only overestimated in the human, but initially overestimated in the yeast. And again, comparative genomics is pretty good at, at bringing that down for you. But more interesting is the intergenic conservation. So you can line up all the intergenic regions. And happily, yeast has its much smaller intergenic regions. And you can look for the little islands of conservation. Uh, It turns out that, for example, in known promoters, like this divergent promoter here for Gal 1 and Gal 10, you can find these binding sites for the transcription factor Gal 4, and you can see that their binding sites are well conserved across the species. Ah, that's very interesting. That suggests ways that we might find these binding sites. GAL4 has the following property. It's actually got a pretty crummy little binding site, CGG11 bases, C, C, G. It's not much to work with. And it occurs all over the place at random. You see it intergenic, genic. But if you line up all the occurrences of GAL4, the ones that are conserved are preferentially the intergenic ones. So GAL4 has a pretty weird property. Intergenic occurrences are conserved four times as often as genic occurrences. Now, that's more surprising than you might think because genes are on average better conserved than intergenic regions. If you take a random pattern, it's three times more likely to be conserved genically than intergenically. So GAL4 shows a 12-fold enrichment compared to random controls for being conserved when it's in intergenic regions. That's a signature you could use. In fact, you could apply that to another motif, and another motif and in the world of computers to every motif. And so you simply test all possible motifs. And the vast majority of them are better conserved in coding regions than non-coding regions, but a whole lot of them are better conserved in intergenic regions than in genic regions. And these include our friend Gal4, but many, many others. And we are confident that there's at least 150 of these things that have have these properties up there. Now, can we figure out what they mean? Well, how could you figure out what a gene, what what, what one of these regulatory sequences is, is interested in? Well, you could see what genes it occurs in front of. That's, that's a good way. So you look at Saccharomyces cerevisiae, you take your Gal4 site, and it occurs at random in front of all sorts of genes. It doesn't help a lot. But if I ask, in front of what genes does it occur in all four species? Bingo. Many fewer, and they overlap very strongly with the category in the gene ontology of carbohydrate metabolism. So if you knew nothing, you'd be able to tell that this motif says something about carbohydrate metabolism. You can also do that using databases of information about genes pulled down together by chromatin immunoprecipitation, by mass spec, by expression clusters. And in each case, you can breathe a meaning into the function of these motifs simply by virtue of what genes they're conserved in front of. And you really do need the multiple species to get rid of the noise and extract the signal. So you get a long list of these things. In many cases, the motifs are previously known, and in, in a number of cases, motifs are newly discovered. And you can, you can in this sense, uh, begin to, directly from the genome, read out this kind of information. I should note this also is the project almost entirely of a single young scientist. This is the work of a fourth-year computer science graduate student, Manolis Convassalius, who who, comes without biological training, and and his project is just take four genomes and see everything you can learn from it, and it's a great new world where, where students can do things like that. Now let me turn to other sorts of genomic information extraction and genome comparison. Uh, the comparison not between organisms, but the comparison between individuals within a species, and in particular, human genetic variation. And here, Neil is giving you a wonderful introduction to human genetic variation. I'll, I will say relatively little uh, in the interests of, of not overlapping too much there. Um, this is all work together with David Altshuler, who's both at the Whitehead and also at, at uh, uh, a professor at, at uh, Harvard University in the Department of Genetics and at the Mass General Hospital. So... As Neil has already told you, if, if this is human genetic sequence, there is variation. How much variation? Well, in any of you, the frequency of heterozygosity is like that. Let me circle that for you right there. You have about one difference every 1,300 bases. It's not a lot. Actually, remarkably little. Take two chimps in Africa. They differ by two to three times as much as that. Take two orangutan in Southeast Asia eight to ten times as much as that. So you think the chips all look the same. They think we all look the same in their right. So, why is this? Why do we have such a low rate of variation? Well, it's because we come from a very small founding population. A mere 3,000 generations or so ago, we all trace back to Africa to a relatively small founding population with an effective size of something like 10 to the fourth. And this is, this is to be expected given that relatively small founding population, which then left Africa, went out all over the world, and carried with it large amounts of of the genetic variation there. And because there hasn't been that much time to build up that much genetic variation, most of the genetic variation that we walk around with today is is genetic variation we walked around with in Africa. By no means all new mutations arise. They can even become important and can be selected. But the vast majority of variation is common variation across different populations. So humans have a low rate of genetic variation. Most human variation is due to common variants, not necessarily the most important, but an awful lot of stuff is there. And because most of it's due to common variation, common variants are likely to play some important role in the risk of disease. I, too, have adopted, like Neil, this notion of rare versus common. This 1% business is a little arbitrary. You have to figure out which population and which, you know, which frequency you care about, but common enough to, to, to make some difference there. And so it has, as Neil has indicated to you, suggested to human geneticists the paradigm, which is really pretty simple-minded. Just enumerate all the variation and correlate it with all the diseases. Um, and, you know, maybe instead of all these lot score mumbo-jumbo stuff, you just have one very big Excel spreadsheet. Right? <laughs> um... We know instances, and those referred to it already, where common variants relate to the risk of common disease, ApoE4 and Alzheimer's disease. He's already indicated factor V light and HFE, et cetera. And the idea, very simply, is just write down all the variants across the top, the common variants you're interested in, or, or depending on whatever you want common to mean, write down diseases and find out, aha, this guy's enriched in diabetes, that guy's enriched in arthritis, et cetera. This being what we call an association study. Now, Neil has already pointed to the question of how many SNPs are there? Um, And the answer is a lot. Um, I find that I, I completely agree with Neil's estimates. I would say 10 or 12 million SNPs will probably matter in the genome. Uh, I think that's right. As of only five years ago, we knew less than a 1,000 of those SNPs. What's wonderful over the past couple of years is it has grown tremendously. By, by sometime in 2001, it was up to 2.1 million SNPs. By now, it's about 3.4 million SNPs. And these don't actually even include yet the SNPs from the SLARA database, which are not in the public databases there. If you include those, our best guesses are probably up in about 4.5 million SNPs or so. And while that is not the 10 to 12 million SNPs, it's within a factor of three or four or something of that, and it's no longer a problem to imagine that we could collect the vast majority of SNPs. So Neil's already talked about how best to use them. There are two ways to imagine using them. Either directly test each one or a set of subset of candidate ones, perhaps the ones in coding regions or others, or maybe you can gang them together and use them in blocks. And um, in the end, I'll uh, express a kind of uh, agnostic point of view, which is that the only reason we care about how best to do it is money, and if, if the costs of doing this come down by a fact, by two orders of magnitude, it stops mattering at all. And my own personal bet is the answer is the technologists will bring down the costs by two orders of magnitude, and we won't, we'll probably just do everything. At the moment, we can't do everything, and so it's very important, as Neil has laid out for you, to think strategically about what to do in the meanwhile before we can do everything. And so attention has gone to how are these things correlated with each other in blocks, and there is, as Neil indicated, a project to try to build a haplotype map, block, uh, map of the genome. I think there also must be a project to collect all the coding variants, and we really need the tools to be able to test all of these things, um, hopefully cheaper and cheaper. But what I want to do, and, and I should say there are a number of examples where all of this has been applied over the course of the past couple of years, and it really is, is seeming to work in many people's hands. But what I want to do is talk about the work of a young scientist named Pardis Sabetti, who, hearing all this stuff about correlations of variants and things, had a very interesting idea. Pardis's idea was, what can I learn about history of variants by studying the way that that these, these SNPs are correlated with each other? And here was her idea. Pardis said, look, if something is pretty common in the human population, and it's been under neutral evolution, nothing's been driving it to get more frequent, then it took a long time to become common. You can state that as a stochastic differential equation, if you want to confuse yourself, or you can just say things rise slowly. They can't rise quickly unless there's selective pressure for them. And so by the time anything wanders around to getting pretty frequent, it's been a long time, and the correlation with nearby things has broken down by recombination. The correlation doesn't extend very far. But if something was under strong positive selection, it could rise to high frequency quickly. And the smoking gun would be that the correlation extends very far because recombination hasn't had so long to break it down. So that was her smoking gun. Now, you have to think about this technically and all, but the idea is is as simple as that. So it would say that things that are at high frequency can't have long-range correlation. None of that up there Things at low frequency might have long-range correlation or short-range correlation. But if you saw something that was at high frequency and had long-range correlation, it would be a case for positive selection. So she decided to take two examples to try. Two genes involved in resistance to malaria, G6PD classic locus, in which mutations are known to confer resistance to malaria, and the CD40 ligand, which she herself had proposed as a candidate for malaria resistance based on a single case control study uh, a year earlier. And what she did, to make a long story short, was she collected a bunch of African populations, genotyped both those loci in 17 control regions, and the, this has now uh, been published in Nature, examined this, and sure enough, just as theory would predict uh, this is what you see, and bingo—the haplotypes that carry G6PD and the, hap- the, the protective allele at G6PD, and the haplotype that carries the protective allele at CD40 ligand stand out like smoking guns on this background, both being clear instances of selection. Joel Horshorn has now shown the same thing with regard to the. Lactase allele that's, that's responsible for lactase deficiency, and I, think this is, and I think we see a few examples across the HLA like this as well. So the idea of Pardis' study is that it should be possible to do a genome-wide scan with no prior information, take any region in the genome and look at the alleles there and compare their frequencies to their extent of long-range correlation. We ought to be able to scan for all instances within certain parameters, of course, of positive selection that has occurred over the last five to ten thousand years. You can't see much further back than that. But the last five or ten thousand years has been pretty interesting. It's pretty much civilization. A lot of diseases and changes of diet and all that. So that's information that's hiding in genomes. Let me talk about two more cases quickly, and then close of information hiding in places and efforts to to take them out. Here, I'll talk about uh, the Cancer Genomics Program at the Whitehead Institute, led by Todd Golub, who's a faculty member at Harvard and the Dana Farber Cancer Institute, and as. As uh, you surely know, and as, as David and his collaborator, Pat Brown, have been uh, pioneers of, the idea is you can grind up tumors, extract their RNA, put them onto various types of arrays. This is one of these Affymetrix arrays. You can do it with spotted cDNA arrays, and read out, in fact, an expression vector telling you how much each gene is turned up or down. And you can take different types of tumors and classify them according to their expression patterns of different genes. Uh, here are two leukemias, the ALL kind of leukemia, the AML type of leukemia, showing very different kinds of gene expression patterns. And what's been exciting over the past couple of years is watching a number of cancers get broken down into more homogeneous types based on their gene expression patterns. So I'll talk about that. I want to talk about a recent uh, extension of this by uh, a medical fellow, Sridhar Ramaswamy, who wanted to use this to investigate more generally what's metastasis about. Now, the classic model for metastasis says that within a primary tumor, some cell or cells undergo some mutations that allow them to depart this primary tumor and take up residence elsewhere and turn into a metastasis. And so it's a clonal selection model where rare cells within a primary depart and become metastases. Um, So Sridhar was interested in this. And what he did was he took a whole bunch of primary tumors of many different types, all solid tumors, and a bunch of metastases of different types, and started by comparing them. What he observed, no shock, was that primary tumors look different than metastases. Of course they're going to look different than metastases. But what was interesting was when he looked closely, here are genes that are up in metastases, down in metastases. When he looked closely, you see this stripe here? You see kind of a stripe there? There are a bunch of primary tumors in these sets that look like metastases in their expression pattern. They're not supposed to because they're not metastases. But they do. So what he did was he defined a gene expression pattern that distinguished metastases from primaries, but then began using it to look at primaries. So he took a collection of lung cancers, an independent set from what he's got here, and he looked at them, and when he clustered lung cancers, according to this distinction that had been picked up, clustering primary tumors, the primary tumors that looked more like normal primaries, had better survival than the primary tumors that looked like metastases. When he did this for breast cancers with an independent data set made by somebody else he got off the web, same thing. When he did that with prostate tumors with the data set we put together, same thing. When he did that with medulloblastomas with the data set we put together, same thing. Not true, by the way, for blood cancers. This looks like there is perhaps a metastasis program already present at diagnosis in primary tumors destined to metastasize. And that the alternative model of metastasis, because notice, we'd never be able to see a signature over here if it was a few little cells. This would have to be a substantial portion of the primary for it to give any signature. So the alternative model is that primaries know in advance what they're intending to do, whether they're intending to metastasize or not, and you should ask them. So that's another example of ways in which genomic information can can point us into things. And the very last one I'll close with is, again, the work of a young MD-PhD. This is the work of Vamsi Muta, who came to the center as uh, an expert in mitochondrial physiology. And I just want to explain Vamsi's work. In particular, I want to explain one very productive Saturday afternoon. Uh, (laughs) LAUGHTER Vamsi came and he heard, among, he, he was coming and doing proteomics on mitochondria and all that, but he heard that we had been working some years before on a genetic disorder that was polymorphic, in fact, in a small Canadian population around the Saguenay-Lac-Saint-Jean region of Quebec, an isolated founder population, common there but less common elsewhere in the world called uh, cytochrome oxidase deficiency. I won't go through all the details, but I'll simply say there was a founder effect, and we were able, by that founder effect, to roughly localize it to a region of chromosome number two. But because we don't have an awful lot of patients for this disease, it's a pretty big region. And there were no obvious candidates, and I'm afraid at that point it sat on the shelf, because wrestling with many megabases of sequence to find the gene simply didn't seem like a good thing to do at the time. Vomsey heard about this and he made us a bet. He said, I claim that with no further lab work I can find the gene. So it seemed like a good bet, because uh, it was cheap. Like we could afford no further lab work. Um, and Vomsey's idea was this he was going to take all the data that had accumulated in the meanwhile about RNA expression, about DNA, about RNA, and about protein on the human genome, and he would intersect all of that and claim to find the gene. So DNA, well, in the interim, the sequence of the human genome had come very far. There were annotations of genes across there. We actually had much of this when, when, the, when, the, uh, when we'd originally mapped this. But he took all of the annotations for genes across the region. That's the DNA component. For the RNA component, expression patterns, well, he didn't have any expression patterns relevant to mitochondria. But he went down the hall to Sridhar Ramaswamy, the cancer guy, and he said to Sridhar, Sridhar, can I borrow all of your cancer data? And what he did was he took all the cancer data and he clustered genes together based on which ones were similar to each other in expression across many, many different cancers. Nothing to do with mitochondria. And then what he did was he identified where known mitochondrial genes occurred. And he said, any gene that is a fellow traveler of that has a similar expression pattern to known mitochondrial genes is a putative mitochondrial gene. And I'll consider it a likely mitochondrial gene. Pretty good. Then he also took his own proteomic data and where he'd been collecting proteins in mitochondria and used that data set. He intersected the three data sets and there was a single candidate gene. In fact, actually, intersecting just the RNA expression and the DNA was enough to get a single candidate gene is confirmed. That is, there was in that region one gene that appeared to be a fellow traveler of mitochondrial genes across the tumors uh, and that gene also had a product expressed in mitochondria. At that point... He broke down and did an experiment. He ordered PCR primers, resequenced the exons, two mutations in patient's correct gene. It turns out it has an exceedingly weak homology to PET-209 in yeast, which does have a mitochondrial function. It's not a homology you would believe at all, but we now think it is, in fact, the correct, very distant homologue to that gene. This is what we want the next generation of students to do. Not to go to the bench first. Yes, of course to go to the bench, but not to go to the bench until you've exploited all the world's knowledge so that what you do at the bench is the most powerful thing you could possibly be doing. Now, I note, unfortunately, the happy story I told you with the, um, the Saturday afternoon, because all it took was going in and pressing return, required five months of work to get these databases in a condition where they could be intersected. Once they were intersectable, it was five minutes. We, there is a gap. We have, to, we have to organize the world's knowledge in a fashion where the graduate students and the postdoc can, in fact, deploy and intersect all of it. So there's a huge amount that's got to be done there. So biology as information is, I think, very much the theme. This is, I think, a promised land for biology. As with promised lands, classically, the older generation never really gets to enter the promised land. It's it's only the young young generation that really fully enters the promised land. And so that is why I am so enthusiastic about the lewis Sigler Institute, about David, about the plans ahead. And uh, I thank you so much for inviting me to come celebrate.
0: Thank you, Eric. As always, great presentation any uh questions or should, are we too hungry want to go eat <laughs> all right um i think uh, it's close enough so that we'll ad- endeavor to be on time so let's be back at one thirty. the speakers i think know what to do and uh we'll see you at one thirty.